My name is Alan Smithson, your host for the XR for Business podcast, where we interview industry leaders who are either making or using immersive virtual, augmented, and mixed reality solutions for business. From marketing and sales to logistics and training to design and remote collaboration, learn how the world's largest organizations are implementing an XR for Business strategy and why you should too. Today's guest is Tracy Widmeyer. Tracy is the Chief Technology Officer and Co-Founder of In Context Solutions. They're delivering a mixed reality platform that is the world's largest brands and retailers are using to streamline their merchandising process and go-to-market strategy much faster. Tracy is also the former president of the VR AR Association chapter in Chicago, Milwaukee, and a board member for the Information Research Technology Institute at Sam Walton College of Business. Tracy is also a member of the Forbes Technology Council. You can learn more about In Context Solutions at www.incontextsolutions.com. With that, I'd love to welcome to the show, Tracy Widmeyer. Hey, Alan. Glad to be here. My pleasure. I'm so excited. This is a show I've been really waiting to do because you guys have been using virtual and augmented reality and mixed reality to help retailers pre-plan their stores because right now, A retailer, if they want to design a new store, they literally have to build a physical store, put all the shelves and like build a mock store. And you're doing this through virtual and augmented reality. And the metrics that you're able to collect, heat maps and where people are looking and the amount of data that you're able to collect from uh, users in a digital world versus a physical world is actually really quite amazing. So maybe you can just talk about in-concept solutions and what you're doing for retailers. Sure. Yeah, there was a lot to bite off there. I'll break it down little by little as we go here. So I think you mentioned creating brand new physical stores. There's actually more retail stores today, more brick and mortar stores than there were back in 2000 when the retail apocalypse version one hit the street. You know, it was the end of brick and mortar. Everyone was going digital. So I think there's a lot of stores being added today. And most stores, whether you're a center store grocery uh, retailer or fashion or department store, those stores go through a regular reset on a period of time, whether it's every couple of years or longer than that. I think the nuance there is actually at the brand level, you know, especially if we focus on center store grocery for a little bit here, the brands are actually working with their retail partners multiple times a year to reset the categories that you shop. So, you know, cereal, frozen foods, healthcare, baby foods, all that sort of stuff are constantly going through some sort of revision period, whether it's the old way is every six months, uh, because that's how long it takes them. And I'll get into that in a little bit, but they're trying to get you to buy or notice one or two more products on that journey to the shelf. We're using virtual technologies now to basically facilitate that process, everything from a brand new store to which products go on the shelf and how many of them are stacked right to left and front to back. There's a lot of low-hanging fruit in that process. And maybe, I don't know how much, Alan, you know about what that process looks like today or in the past. What I'm going to do is tell you a little bit about where we've come from. A lot of brands and retailers have what they call mock warehouses. So they physically stage all their sets, what every category is going to look like. And then they invite their, if you're a brand, you invite your retail partners into that center, which means you got to physically travel or fly somewhere. And then they present what they're thinking what is this going to look like if it's springtime now they're thinking about what is the fall going to look like they'll physically stock out all the merchandise and then have their retail partners go through and go well 
this looks good, you know, I don't like that, can we change this, that sort of thing. I think where virtual technologies really hit the mark is that they're doing this old antiquated process every six months because it just physically takes that long to do. But if we can do everything in virtual and you can then introduce Xbox for retail concepts where put a headset on your desktop and jump in a virtual store together no matter where you are in the world, now you can start to do that whole perpetual merchandising process much more frequently. And that's turned out to be a catalyst for not only doing more than every six months, but integrating in exact feedback from your customers to figure out what's going to hit the mark. Does that resonate so far with you? Yeah, I, I think to put it in perspective, if companies are resetting every six months and going through this process, we saw with Bell Helicopters, they designed a helicopter and it took six years to design a helicopter. And in VR, it took six months. Is that similar? People are being able to be more frequent, have more data and travel less, I think is the big one as well. Yeah. And they're trying to figure out what is going to hit that emotional note with their customers, which means trends and interesting packaging and food trends and merchandise, all that sort of stuff changes much more frequently than every six months. And if they're competing with digital footprints, they're A-B testing website changes you know, multiple times a day. So how do you compete with that in a brick and mortar world? You have to be more efficient at not only creating innovative ideas, but then testing those with your customers and then figuring out which one is going to move the needle and rolling that out. It could be higher sales, but it could also be less labor involved. Even if you keep sales static, but you touch the shelf less, there's millions of dollars at stake. Absolutely. One of the things that I took from your website is a quote. It says, mixed reality solutions can help you drive faster, smarter, more profitable decisions at retail. What are some of the customers that you're dealing with? What are some of the results that they're seeing now that this technology has really unlocked? Yeah. So I'll give you a retail example and then a brand example. On the retail side, they're testing every six months, doing category resets. And then typically what they do is they'll take a subset of their stores and roll out this new innovative change to a handful of stores. In the case that, that I'm going to talk about here, we did 1,500 stores. Out of a, It was, I think, about a third of their total store count. And what they do is they let that idea sit and mellow for about 15 weeks. And then they gather the sales out of that subset of stores and then they measure 15 weeks pre. So what were the sales then? What are the sales now? How did the test, you know, how did it do? And should we roll it out to all the stores, right? So 15 weeks is three and a half months. We were able to do a side-by-side test in about seven days with several thousand customers. And when we lined up the sales data at the end of that 15 weeks, you know, with the data we collected virtually was high 90% correlated. So what that means is 90 96, 97% of the time, consumers are doing the same thing in a virtual store that they were doing in a real store because of the realism we can achieve. The difference is it didn't take 15 weeks. It wasn't hundreds of thousands of dollars just to roll it out. And you're able to then understand the levers we pulled. Did it raise sales? Did it keep sales static, but you touched the shelf less? Or does it just strengthen your decision? And you look many times through our platform, customers are making the decision to not do anything because if sales stay the same, but you got to touch the shelf, why even make the change? Why bother? Yeah. Yeah. You saved yourself hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars doing a test that you would have done and you would have maybe even decreased sales by making those mistakes. Correct. 
some of the most egregious stats that we have, 85% of the time that retailers are touching the shelf, there's not a change. They just do it because they've always done it that way. So you can think of the cost and labor involved there. Another example would be on the brand side. Did you say 85% don't make a change? Yes. Wow. So they're trying things and 85% of the time is not making any difference. Yeah. Yep. Wow. 85% of the time, either it's stagnant or it actually, like you said, it lowers sales. So only in that 15% of the time are you actually moving the needle. Let, let's just stop for a second. So, you know, using your system in context solutions, your shopper MX or whatever system you're using, a retailer with 96% high 90 accuracy can run as many tests as they want with very little cost associated with it comparatively and get the same data as they would in months in a matter of days. That That's what I'm hearing? Yes, precisely. Why? I'm just trying to rack my head around why every retailer doesn't do this now. That's a great question. I think the largest impediment we see is we're competing with human processes. One of the things I always tell our teams is if we were replacing a CRM, there's a well-defined market there, and you know you're you're replacing CRM. This is what you have today. This is what you're getting tomorrow. Maybe you're pulling on a cost lever, whatever it is. When you're competing with human processes in, in an organization that's got 50 years of legacy workflows and processes wrapped in their human capital, it's a different process. I mean, you're looking at the hype curve where you've got the forward leaners, right? And they're already well into these technologies. They've been using them for five to 10 years. You've got people who are starting to think about it. And what does that mean for the organization? Then you have basically put your head in the sand and let me just continue to do it the way we have been doing it. And we all know where that path ends. That's most of the time what we compete with is how do you institute some sort of organizational change to wrap around this process to make you successful? It's it's mind-boggling because even companies that say we've got all these employees and we're loyal to our employees, we don't want to put this technology in because it's going to replace them. The problem that I see is that if they don't put these technologies in place, those people are going to be out of a job because the whole company is going to fold because it won't be able to stay competitive. If you have a large retailer that is using this technology and you have a large retailer that isn't, there is going to be a dramatic difference in the success rates. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's key to point that out. And, and the way we always think about this is there's this, this huge trend in retail to think about your customer experience. You know, I call them brand memories or emotional notes. How do you get your customer to come back to your store? So instead of focusing your labor force on stocking the shelves and touching the shelf when it may not make a difference, Instead of saying those people are going to be out of a job, why not refocus those to worry about your customer more? That's where the opportunity exists is how can you deploy your labor in a way that is really going to matter to your customer and make that journey and that experience much more impactful and memorable. I used to hate, I still don't like it, but I used to hate grocery shopping. And it wasn't so much that I didn't enjoy walking up and down the aisles. It was because either the music is crap or the lighting is bad. But being able to have a system like this where you could literally, you could change the lighting, you could put a drop ceiling in, you could try all these different things and see the comfort levels of people in different scenarios because something as subtle as changing the lighting could be a huge impact in the customer experience or the customer emotion on them shopping. And that's not something you're focused on when you're focused on which product goes at which height and that sort of thing. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. You see some retailers are leading the way there. And Mariano's is a chain here in Chicago that's done it right, and they've been leading the way there. But you you can shop while you have a glass of wine and somebody is playing piano in the background. Why do I have to go to a sterile place to buy my groceries? Right, exactly. And, And that's why a lot of them are opening up food courts and things like that where you can buy the food. Uh, sit down, have a meal. Again, it becomes a destination of memory. You Even Tesco, I think, has done this for a number of years already, but you can have your nails done in the middle of the, the grocery store while your cart sits there and is kind of docked off to the side, all because they're wrapping that experience around just putting products in the basket. I think one of the most incredible things that we have coming is, I don't want to say removing the retail altogether, but you guys have a system that people at home, as these headsets become more prevalent and people in VR, you're going to be able to shop from your house exactly like how you would walk up and down the aisles and get the same experience of shopping and finding new things. And Because I think product discovery is part of the whole physical shopping experience. But in VR, you're going to be able to say, hey, show me hot sauces. And instead of having a rack of hot sauces that has maybe 100 things, you could have 10,000 hot sauces and you could have a dial of heat versus very, very mild to very hot. Is that something you guys are thinking about in the future is how do we help our retailers use the digital aspect as a direct-to-consumer method or is it strictly physical retail? Uh, It's both. I mean, we've kept our eye on that market. There's a couple of things working in our favor and there's a couple of things that I think have to develop yet. I mean, in in working in our favor is you know, number of headsets, headset proliferation, uh, lower cost headset, all those things might be a little longer tail, but you're starting to see some of that stuff. If a headset's half the price of an iPhone, everybody might have four or five in their house. So you're right there. The Oculus Quest is coming out next week at F8, and it's full six degrees of freedom, standalone. So you don't need a computer. You just put on the headset. You got two controllers, so you have your hands. You don't need to set up a room. You don't need scanners and, and base stations to set up around your room. You put on the headset, you can walk around, you can move around, and it's $399. Precisely, and that'll continue. Some of the things that have to be figured out yet are you have, if you're a brand, there's a lot of opportunity there to go direct to consumer. That There's been Dollar Shave Club and a few of these other places that have done that with a lot of success. How do you enable a brand to go direct to consumer in a way that makes sense? I think we got to figure that out. And then if you're a retailer, same type of thing. I mean, Retailers have a lot of brand equity wrapped up in brick and mortar. How do you replicate that in a a virtual experience? Now, the way we think about that is you need an experience that's magnitudes 10x better than what it is to walk into the store or people just aren't going to do it. The difference is the average brick and mortar grocery store now has 40,000 SKUs and the average household buys 268 of those a year. So a fraction of those are things that I would ever be or you would ever be interested in. But if there's a way to present and merchandise those in a way that makes the experience much more engaging for me and I can still experience and I'm curious about new products, that's at my fingertips. But the experience is narrowed down to all the things I would never consider are gone. I think that's a possibility. And then I think that the the stepping stone into the future is you start to develop a personality, artificial intelligence, a personality with with the products themselves. They can tell you about themselves. You can pull in all sorts of other information that you might not have available inside of the brick and mortar, even if it's on your cell phone. There's a lot of ways there where you have Alan's own virtual store that's got beer, cereal, and TVs or whatever that shopping trip looks like. You have that ability as long as the content is there for you.
One of the things that I always thought would be really cool is I love grocery shopping in the fresh vegetables and stuff, but wouldn't it be cool if I could go and look at the fresh vegetables or maybe it's fish or something and I'm standing by a seaside looking at a fish market. You know what I mean? Yep. Like why do we have to be, because everybody, especially in virtual reality retail, they seem to be recreating retail stores. I'm like, well, if I wanted that, I'd just go to the retail store. Put me on a beach standing next to the fishing village where I get the, the sounds and sights and I go choose my fish and it comes delivered by however. We did a, an experience a couple of years ago and unveiled it at the National Retail Federation Conference. Intel was part of it, but basically we worked with Columbia. They make tents and one of the biggest gripes is the tents on a showroom floor, you can only fit three or four because of floor space. So we created a VR experience that would allow you to go to the top of Mount Everest and see a campsite that's got lots of different tents, allow you to crawl in them, look at it, play around with them, understand really what they're going to look like, how they perform, all that sort of... How many people can fit in it? Because <laughs> this thing says six person, but I can fit me and my dog. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you start to think about just the inventory that would be available. And now with Prime one day and two day shipping to order in an experience where you're confident what you're going to get and have it show up the next day or two is it's kind of the norm now. I'm actually running a panel at AWE this year with the head of XR or VR for Macy's and they implemented VR furniture shopping in six of their stores. And in those six stores, they saw a 65% increase in order size and less than 2% return rates. So rather than scale it out to 10 stores and then 20 stores, they just took it right to 100 different stores. So there's 100 Macy's across America that have VR now. And one of the things that stuck with me is that Building a furniture display store within a Macy's costs about half a million dollars. Building the VR part of it is under $50,000. So there's your 10x return, not to mention they're now seeing across their entire 100 stores a 45% increase versus non-VR. Yeah, that's that's amazing. These are not trivial numbers. It goes back to the different levers, whether it's brand awareness, higher sales, or again, if you have less returns, that's a huge impact. The interesting thing there is when you're trying to create these impulse purchases, you have literally an infinite inventory available to help drive awareness and impulse and upsell that you wouldn't necessarily have in brick and mortar as well. If you can speak to maybe some of the specifics around the Columbia tent, did they use it? Did it show positive returns? What was the ROI if there was one? Um, we never ended up rolling that one out. That was more of a, hey, here's what the future could look like with a, a real life use case there. That was two years ago even. So you know things have changed quite a bit now, two and a half. Kind of dust that one off. Yeah, exactly. We could kind of see where the future was headed. And again, we sort of monitoring the headset adoption and we could have the best content even today. But if there's no consumers there, it's sort of this chicken and the egg. Who's going to pay for it? Who's going to see the value? Who's going to take advantage of it? Absolutely. Mountain Equipment Co-op, which is a Canadian outdoors store, they just introduced augmented reality visualizer for their tents, actually. So you can now pull out your phone, see the tent in your space using AR kit and AR core. It's looking through the lens of a phone and a device that is in the hands of billions of people. A lot of consumers have a, a smartphone, I would venture to say all of them, and the technologies behind building something in VR and building something in AR are quite similar. You can build it in, in Unity. It's the same thing. So one of the things that we've been telling our customers is, look, when you build something for, maybe it's for training, but that same asset can be used for retail. It can be used for training. It can be used for 
number of different aspects within the organization. And you guys are building stores that are complete replications of a retail store. And have they thought to maybe use these assets in different ways? Yeah, I think they're starting to. It's one of the value props we always try to instill is if you're going to create the 3D content, individual items, you want to leverage those in as many places as you can, not only from B2B planning between brands and retailers, but possibly your e-com site for an in-depth rotation of the product or future state AR, VR when the headsets are there. You're absolutely right. The content cost is coming down. It's been one of those historical impediments Where are you going to get the content from? And do you have enough images to recreate it? And those things are getting better as well. Yeah, we're seeing a a revolution with 3D modelers and sites like TurboSquid and Sketchfab and these kind of sites where they're taking the world's content creators and giving them an outlet to sell their content. Three years ago, even just to make one 3D asset was in the hundreds of dollars. And it's now, I would assume, sub $100, depending on what the object is. But and the photorealism is getting there as well. Before we we started working on a watch, we've had the same watch for like three years, and it looked so cartoonish and crap before. And now we've got it looking completely photorealistic. It took us three years to get there, but now we've got the formula for it. Yeah, exactly. For us, we've been doing this for 10 years. We started in 2009 before really headsets were, were hitting the market there. So we've got more of the general form factor grocery items, so bags, bottles, boxes, pouches, canisters. We can create those on the fly with some dimensions and images using computer vision. So we've got that. I think where we're starting to look out is things like apparel and fashion. So if you've got a blouse or a button-down shirt, you don't need just a shirt. You want the shirt on a mannequin. You want it hanging and you want it folded. Yeah, you need the Olympic data. You need it to flow. And what does that fabric look like versus this one? Yeah, so we're using some depth sensing cameras to be able to scan that on a mannequin and then use machine learning to take the mannequin out of the garment, essentially, and from there we can hang it and fold it and you get three or four different representations of it with a two to three minute scan. We have to continually think about how do we make content creation as easy and as inexpensive as possible to leverage these types of platforms. Absolutely. I think that was one of the biggest challenges over the last few years was, well, we'll put it this way, Amazon has 1.5 billion products for sale on Amazon. And over the next 10 years, every single one is going to have to be sold in 3D somehow. How do you take a billion products and convert them to 3D? You nailed it by saying computer vision and machine learning. That's the future of where it's going. Is There won't be physical photographs of product shots anymore. I think it's all going to move digital. Yeah. Yeah. And you're starting to see some cooperation between retailers and brands now where at the very beginning of creating a product, I don't care if it's a coffee mug or a shirt or anything, you typically have some sort of CAD drawing of that. The end designer for that item is using some sort of CAD program. The problem has been it's been siloed off into one area of an organization and maybe the format doesn't integrate well with anything else. And now by the time you get that product on shelf, a lot of those details are lost or even non-existent. So you're starting to see some real cooperations. Everybody can see the future of how do we follow that digital items journey from inception in someone's mind all the way to the shelf and allow this proliferation of the formats and details that everybody can leverage. You see Kronos now having the 3D Commerce Exploratory Group, which you know I hope and I'm sure it will turn into a full working group. It's because everybody can see that cooperation benefits everyone. This is an important point, and I want to just emphasize it because 
even if you created a 3D model, let's say, for example, you create a 3D model of a shirt in OBJ, which is a, a 3D model format. If you want to drop that into Facebook, it won't work. If you want to drop it into Snapchat, it won't work. If you want to drop it onto web, it won't work. So standardizing the 3D models that everybody uses, there's OBJ, there's GLTF, there's FBX, there's now USDZ or USDZ with uh, Apple. There's all these different formats and they all have different abilities. Some look more photorealistic, some don't, some are larger files, some are smaller. And by this Chronos group, which is a group that organizes 3D model, uh, I guess, visuals and computer compression and stuff like that. They're a group that consolidates the industry, things like MP4s and stuff like that. But really, by them standardizing this, it's going to unlock true 3D commerce because unless we can figure out how to make one model that works across all platforms, it's still going to be a very cost prohibitive exercise for retailers and brands. Yeah, and if you think about the analog as sort of the JPEG of 15 to 25 years ago, imagine if you had 10 different flavors of what an image was and everybody picked one and they weren't interoperable. I think that's where we are now with 3D across the web and all these other platforms. We've spent a, an, an exorbitant amount of time trying to make things look photorealistic on web AR, and we just got everything working. We finally got web AR working, and then Apple shut down the cameras on. I was like, what? <laughs> it's so Apple's kind of this outlier messing with everybody's mojo here, but they're big enough that they can do that. I think hopefully Kronos Group is able to um, bring Apple into the fold because otherwise we're going to have to have some sort of universal converter for them, which... There's already converters popping up, but... Yeah, and one of the things we've had to invest in you before these initiatives got going is this kind of content pipeline that takes raw content in any number of the, the various formats and can transcode those to mobile, web, FBX, OBJ, DAE, all the various flavors. It's been painful because even within some of those standards, you have a wide leeway of creativity to build something slightly different that you might not anticipate. We're looking forward to when there's maybe one or two different formats that rule this instead of 10 or 15 that are out there now. It even gets crazy. So within an OBJ, you've got texture files and it gets crazy the amount of details that these things have and you need them. But like you said, being able to standardize this and that will also allow for marketers to have a better understanding of how they can use these uh, 3D assets across multiple uh, business units. So the guys in e-com can use the same models as the people who are maybe in your case setting up a store visualizer right so you're in vr it looks beautiful then taking that exact same thing making it available as a 3d object on a web commerce browser and then being able to drop that and see yourself in ar wearing that thing so having that full content management stack is going to be very important even if there is one single source of truth for a 3d object I'm sure you know as you get into the headset and you got to run 90 frames a second or 60 at least to, to make it an enjoyable experience, draw calls and all the other technical side of how that texture map is laid out, PBR and all sorts of things could impact performance. You almost need to be able to, within maybe a small band, make sure that thing runs performant across mobile, web, headset, all, all the different capabilities. Yeah, we're not quite there yet. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. As you're saying it, I'm like, oh my God, we have so much work to do. <laughs> it's the work that companies like In Context Solutions are doing that is really pioneering and paving the way for retailers and brands to really start leveraging the full power of spatial computing. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a number of things working in our favor there and Moore's Law, if you will, against some of these initiatives. And we'll get there. We're trying to look at how fast it's going to be. You know, the first Oculus was out in what, early 2012. So we're seven years into this journey already, and it might take another two, three, five, seven years to see some of these things come out. But with all the investment of the Apples, the Microsofts, the Googles, the Facebooks, the Amazon, I mean, there's no doubt in my mind that we're going to get there. Yeah. I mean, Amazon hired a few hundred 3D modelers. Apple's hired a thousand AR developers. Walmart just rolled out 17,000 VR headsets to train their staff. The big companies get it. They did a couple POCs a few years ago. They went, oh, wow, this increased our training retentions by 25%. That's not an inconsequential number. Macy's increased our sales basket size by 45% on average and decreased our return rates to 2%. These are crazy statistics. And the companies that are getting in now are going to have such a big advantage over those who are putting it off. And and one of the things that I keep reiterating on this show is that you have to utilize what's existing now. When we advise companies, we advise them not just on here's an AR thing that you can do, but we look at it from a holistic standpoint. What can you use this technology for in your training, in your internal training, in your, your marketing, in your sales? And all of these things, I, I interviewed the CEO, Casper Tickier of Zapper, the AR platform, and he said, live within what this technology can do right now while planning for the future. So use the technology that exists currently because it's still amazing. Don't keep looking to the future as, oh, when it comes, we'll do it. It's here now. Leverage the technology now and look to the future of what's possible in the future. Yeah, and history really hasn't been kind to those. If you look at the last computing platform like this, you could consider mobile. And, and you know those that adopted mobile late, there was real consequences there. I mean, it's the same thing with even the talent required to create. And you, know, you mentioned 3D modelers. You also have 3D engineers and the gaming engineers that bring these experiences to life. 12 years ago, there wasn't a mobile developer. Now you think about another five to six years in the future, like there's a dearth of need there for... 3D developers and 3D modelers and creating efficient and inexpensive content. We haven't been through this maybe for VR, but we've been through this paradigm before. Absolutely. And 12 years ago, app developer wasn't a job at all. It wasn't even a consideration. And now there's millions and millions of app developers. And five years ago, VR and AR wasn't a job. VR developers, AR developers, it wasn't a job. And now there's you know, maybe maybe 100,000 out there, maybe less, maybe a little more. But in five years from now, that is one of the jobs of the future. Yeah, and that's why I think it's important. You mentioned VRAR Association. They've got a lot of different programs with universities and students to help seed that work. But I think that it's very important to invest in the future that way just to help flourish because at some point it becomes a bottleneck. Every company out there in my mind has to be a software company in the future. And if the talent isn't there, there's going to be a lot of falling at the wayside. Well, I think that's where VR and AR can actually solve a lot of that too, because we can hyper-accelerate education by using these tools to upskill and reskill people. Uh, I read a, a stat that 65% of grade one children will graduate into jobs that don't exist. And I think we're going to need to start rejigging education as a whole. That's my long-term goal is to create a new education platform using every piece of technology that we're building now with the one focus of just hyper-accelerating education. On that note, 
what problem in the world do you want to see solved with XR technologies? It's basic, and I've sort of alluded to it at this point, but there's just so much inefficient work done and time wasted, frankly, by having to fly people all over the place, have a meeting here, wait to get people in a central location. And there might be times where that's warranted and required. But when you try out some of these demos, I mean, I did a demo of the Wild platform last week. and How was that? I love that. That looks amazing. Yeah. We had a couple of people across the country on our teams join in. And when I'm inside of the experience I, and I'm next to somebody and I can hear them in my headset, there were times where I felt like I was physically going to bump into them. That's how real it felt. <laughs> yeah. When you get to that level of immersion, there's no reason you can't become more efficient at that process. And there's a lot of derivative benefits. Flying people is a lot of cost, but you think of the you know climate change and pollution on airline. I mean, there's a lot of different derivative effects there. Even bringing people closer is such an immense benefit there. Absolutely. And people aren't going to stop flying. They're just going to start flying for vacations rather than work. <laughs> right. I don't know about you, but as a business person, I've traveled the world and everything's, oh, you know, you're here and there, you're there. It really sucks traveling for business. It does. Two days later, you're in your destination, you're exhausted. You haven't showered and you got to go to a meeting, you finish the meeting, you got to buy a plane and do the whole thing over again. It sucks. Yeah, I agree. I agree. But getting on a plane to go to a beach. I can get behind that. Well, I want to thank you so much for joining us on this podcast, uh, Tracy. It's been really amazing. Is there anything else you want to share with the audience? We have uh, the latest generation of our platform just launched a few weeks ago. One of the things we're, we're doing is sort of leveraging the historical knowledge. So we've been playing with headsets since 2012. I'd mentioned the content pipeline. So how do you usher content from the web to a, a 3D simulation in the headset? Um, and then make that seamless. So if you're working on your desktop and you have a headset connected and you might want to jump into the VR experience and see what it looks like for your customers, we're enabling that with push button VR. And again, the content being transcoded to high res, low res, different levels of details, all that sort of stuff is something we think we've nailed with all the content. We're excited to see where our customers take that. Then again, we're not abandoning any of the mobile capabilities we have and leaning into that as well. And I would just sort of echo what you said before is if things aren't perfect today, there's no reason not to try it because there's still an immense cost savings or upside potential by just dabbling. And there's ways to get started for very little cost. And at least keep it your head wrapped around what the future could hold. Absolutely. On that, I want to thank you and thank everybody for listening. This has been the XR for Business podcast with your host, Alan Smithson. This podcast was another amazing example of how XR technologies are revolutionizing businesses across every industry. You can learn more about In Context Solutions at incontextsolutions.com, I-N-C-O-N-T-E-X-T-S-O-L-U-T-I-O-N-S. Tracy, thank you so much again. Absolutely. My pleasure. Being an influencer on LinkedIn in the XR field uh, really has opened up an opportunity for us to not only understand what corporations are looking for in virtual augmented mixed reality and artificial intelligence, but also from the aspect of the startups, studios, developers, and enthusiasts out there and what they need. So what we decided to do after getting hundreds and hundreds of messages is to open up XR Ignite to the entire XR community of startups, studios, individuals, passionate people, and really to build a new community that brings together everybody who's passionate about this technology for a low cost and allow them to contribute 
to learn and to get better across the whole industry. That is really the reason why we started XR Ignite, to hyper accelerate the XR for business industry, business and education. And one of the things that we just keep noticing is that there's so many resources out there. There's the VRAR Association, which we're partners with. There are you know reports coming out daily, but there's no one source where people can come together and start just having conversations around how to get better in this industry. And that's why we started XR Ignite. I would encourage anybody who's listening to this podcast, if you're in the corporate side, if you're a startup, if you're an individual, if you're an enthusiast, sign up today at xrignite.com and you'll be getting access to new reports, investor lists, media lists, exclusive content, interviews with our mentors. We have over 56 mentors. And if you're a startup and you pay an annual fee, you'll actually have the opportunity to book a one-on-one, one-hour call with one of the mentors. What we're doing with that is we're actually recording those sessions, we're transcribing them, taking out any personal information, and we're making those transcripts available to all members. So I think XR Ignite is gonna drive a lot of value for anybody in this industry who's looking to up their game and also for corporates who want a real insight as to what technology is coming out. So I would encourage everybody to sign up at xrignite.com and I really look forward to driving value, executing on our mission to hyper-accelerate XR for business and education.